I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. About 10% of children who are diagnosed with hearing loss at birth have an auditory neuropathy that is usually due to a genetic cause. One of the most common genetic causes of hearing loss is due to a mutation of the otoferlin gene, which encodes for a protein that enables communication between the sensory cells of the inner ear and the auditory nerve. Decibel Therapeutics is developing an experimental gene therapy intended to restore hearing in patients with the mutation of the otoferlin gene. It's part of a larger collaboration with Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. We spoke to Lawrence Reed, CEO of Decibel, about the unmet need in genetic hearing loss, how these conditions can affect early development of children, and the case for gene therapies to treat these conditions. Lawrence, thanks for joining us. Oh, hey, good afternoon. Thanks very much for uh, having me. I'm ex- uh, excited to talk to you. Decibel's working on therapies to address hearing and balance loss. Some of these are related to aging, some of these to the use of cancer treatments. I want to focus our discussion today on the company's efforts to develop gene therapies for genetic hearing conditions. There's been a fair bit of attention and activity around gene therapies for vision loss, but we don't hear a lot about diseases of genetic hearing loss and the need there. How large a group of conditions might this include, and and how big is the need? Yeah, no, that's that's uh, that's a great question to to get us rolling here right into the uh, right into the substance. Just before we dive too deeply in, uh, I just want to note for the record, as I'm obligated. Um, I'm the CEO of a public company, Decibel Therapeutics, and excited to be here today. But I will make uh, some forward-looking statements about our programs. And um, I have to note there's, uh, you know, in in terms of biotech drug development, there's uh, risk associated with all those programs. And um, people should also take a glance at our regulatory filings in terms of uh, understanding the risks and and opportunities involved in uh, this type of business. So... With that formality aside, yeah, let's talk about uh, uh, genetic hearing loss, which is we think is a very, uh, very important, really emerging medical uh, opportunity from a from a therapeutics perspective. So severe hearing loss is a is a very significant global um, unaddressed need in terms of therapeutics. It's a field today that is largely addressed by assistive devices, either hearing aids, with which uh, I'm sure everybody's familiar, but uh, also devices called cochlear implants. Some of your audience may be less familiar with about those, and we'll talk about them maybe a little bit later in the conversation. There are no approved therapies for any form uh, of hearing loss. And um, we believe this is a, a, a major discrepancy or a major paradox in terms of modern uh, medical care. And um, we look forward to being in the vanguard of, uh, of beginning to solve that issue in, in, in years to come. So um, around the world, somewhere around four or 500 million people um, are estimated to suffer from some degree of hearing loss. Those are numbers uh, from the World Health Organization and others. Um, within that, obviously, genetic forms of hearing loss 
um, are more rare. But, but uh, scientific knowledge today tells us that there are about 100 different forms of genetic-based hearing loss. And um, we've come to understand those much better at the molecular level in the last, you know, uh, 10 to 20 years, along with, you know, a lot, lot better genetic understanding of so many forms of, of common diseases. Um, but also, it's really just in the last few years that the route by which we can finally begin to address some of these has really begun to appear for us. And um, we believe in the foreseeable future. That's the opportunity for gene therapy in the ear. Of those, you know, many different forms of, of, of hearing loss, we estimate these numbers are a little soft. Um, we estimate that about 1.7 or so per thousand children born in the U.S. suffer from uh, some form of genetic hearing loss, one of, one of those hundred different forms. And that rolls up sort of, as you, as you think about it in total, that in the, uh, in, the, in the Western world, often these are the numbers that, that tend to be uh, most available, that in the U.S. and Western Europe, we, we estimate that somewhere north of a million people um, suffer from some form of genetic hearing loss. And we'll talk more about different opportunities, but at Decibel, we believe we're working on um, products that might have the opportunity to address perhaps up to about a half of, of that total population. Um, so that's sort of the, the playing field from a, from a quantitative basis. Um, if you'll allow me, I'll keep going and sort of try and put some color on the impact of, of hearing loss, particularly in uh, children who are born deaf, but, uh, well, I did want to ask you that about that because with a, a condition like this, it's not just a matter of lifestyle impact or quality of life issues, but young children have a developmental impact, I imagine, from hearing loss. What's the impact of hearing loss on young children who are most likely to suffer from a, a genetic form of this? Yeah, no, that, that's that, that's a great question, and I think it really puts uh, the fingertip on on a really important set of issues. So, um, so for a child born with a profound congenital uh, lack of hearing, we refer to that. The medical community refers to that as a neurodevelopmental emergency, quote unquote, meaning that it needs to be addressed really as early as possible during the uh, the first formative months and years of a child's life. And for example, a cochlear implant in, uh, in, in significant parts of the Western world, the goal is to administer that uh, cochlear implant within the first nine to 12 months uh, of an infant's life if they are born uh, with, with, with profound hearing loss. The, if you step back um, and think about the early years of a child's life, we know that most of one's language acquisition skills are, you know, are occurring or being developed during the first three years of life. And so if you think about the role of hearing and language in the early years of a child's life, one's ability to hear completely informs um, the ability of, of, of a child to participate in a, in a, in a verbal linguistic exchange with their, with their parents, with their siblings, you know, ultimately with their you know, teachers and classmates, just to, to name the perhaps the most obvious categories of people. And it's during those very early months and years that very strong 
social and emotional connections are being formed um, between a, a, an infant baby and, um, and their parents, for example, and that they're beginning to acquire those sounds. If you think about a child starts to make, you know, sort of intelligible uh, verbal, you know, emotions sort of in the, uh, you know, around the latter part of their first year of life and, and sort of turning that, that corner of, of about a year of age. And so those connections that are being made during those early months and years are, are incredibly uh, formative and that, that people, children who fall behind on that front, um, that eventually they can, they can catch up. Children's brains are very plastic. And for example, with a cochlear implant a little later in life, they're able to close some of those gaps, but the devices that we use are, they are imperfect and are unable to restore a, a complete physiological uh, sense of, uh, of, of hearing uh, capability to a child of, of, of that kind of age or, or, or any kind of age. So we think it's an incredibly important part of the uh, overall hearing loss landscape and a big part of the reason why we and others have chosen to start with uh, with gene therapy for treating these genetic forms of uh, of hearing loss. You mentioned cochlear implants in hearing aids. Are these generally effective ways to treat someone with a genetic hearing loss? And are there other treatments available? So the only forms of treatment today um, if one chooses to have a uh, to, to, uh, to provide a treatment to a child, are these devices, as you say, either cochlear implants or hearing aids? They are fundamentally different types of devices in that a hearing aid is, in simple terms, is merely a way to amplify um, the signal that 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 you uh, that a child or an adult more more often detects and. Um, that it relies on, a, you know, a, a remaining ability for your your brain to hear us to hear a signal from your ear based on detection of a sound from the from the outside environment, and a hearing aid can can amplify that. There are some forms of genetic hearing loss that result in a more moderate degree of hearing loss, such as due to mutations in the stereocilin gene, which is a uh, a target that's of interest to us at Decibel, and in that case today. Those children are treated and helped to a degree um, by, by hearing aid. In other forms of genetic hearing loss, there is a complete blockade of the ability of the inner ear to signal to the brain. For example, in um, our lead program addresses uh, hearing loss due to mutations in the otoferlin gene. And that, that, those mutations cause a complete uh, blockade in signaling from the inner ear to the brain, it's referred to as an auditory neuropathy. Um, a cochlear implant effectively bypasses. A cochlear implant is embedded into the cochlea, directly into the cochlea um, of uh, somebody with a severe form of, of, of hearing loss. And it basically bypasses the function of the inner ear and transmits a, a, a sound coming from the outside world directly into the nervous system. And so that is able to provide um, some degree of restoration of a coarse form of hearing um, to, to, for example, a child who is profoundly uh, lacking hearing.
So they fundamentally different in terms of how they're used in terms of the severity of hearing loss in the patient population uh, that they address. You've got a, a partnership with Regeneron, which is unusual in that Regeneron is providing access to its technologies as well as funding, while Decibel retains worldwide development and commercialization rights to its therapies. Regeneron will get tiered royalties on any new sales on products that result from the collaboration, but I, I don't think I've seen another deal structured like this one. Did I describe the terms correctly, and how did it come about? You did a, a, a very nice job of summarizing the key parts of, of the uh, the business terms of the relationship, and uh, you're right. To our knowledge, it's it is a very uh, very unique uh, or a unique deal structure, and um, came about. I think you have to understand Regeneron a little bit and their uh, their uh, very unusual culture as a you know effectively as a as a large biotech company today to have a sense of what of, of how it came about um so regeneron obviously is you know one of the leading science driven uh, biotechnology companies in the industry and even as they've matured to become a very uh, sophisticated and a successful product development and commercial uh, organization they are still I think it's objective to say they are still fundamentally driven by their research capabilities and by the scientific ethos that uh, comes from their founders who still run the company today and the outstanding, you know, R&D department, uh, departments that they've built over the, uh, the last 40 years or so. And um, so that company looks at medical opportunities from a scientific and medical basis first and foremost and how they can impact those with with their capabilities, with their science, with their uh, with their technologies, and um, and then analyzes the commercial opportunities from that very much very much downstream. So Decibel um, approached Regeneron back in uh, 2017, and the company was just getting started in terms of really building out Decibel. That is, was in terms of really building out its pipeline and opportunities. And the companies at the time were very interested in, in some of the particular signaling mechanisms between the ear and the brain that appeared to be related to areas of neurobiology and molecular neuroscience in which Regeneron has been um, uh, particularly expert in the, in the past uh, several years. And then over time, they've matured or evolved more towards um, an interest in gene therapy and uh, Regeneron broadly speaking, as a very significant commitment to genomic medicines, really to complement their obviously huge expertise in, uh, in, in antibodies and protein-based therapies. They're really building out a commitment to genomic medicines, and they have uh, very significant investments in oligonucleotide-based therapies, in um, you know, new investments in genome editing, and also in AAV-based gene therapy. And so for them, Decibel represents a an investment into uh, a new frontier for gene therapy, namely the inner ear. And um, so they've been very engaged with us in the science of how we deliver new gene therapies to the inner ear. And, um, and so it falls under their strategic commitment to genomic medicines as a major driver of their growth in years to come. But fundamentally, I would say it's very much driven um, by their scientific appreciation of what we do at Decibel, the caliber of opportunities 
and the opportunity to really deploy gene therapy into uh, effectively completely into a new uh, a new area of medicine, namely uh, therapies for hearing loss. How closely are the two companies working, and how big a boost has this been to your efforts? Well, so uh, we work really quite closely together. Um, you know, in addition to the sort of usual governance committees meeting on a, a quarterly basis, we have uh, very collaborative program teams around the individual projects. We focus today, uh, all of the efforts of the collaboration go into three principal programs, all of which are seeking to address and develop gene therapies for the treatment of genetic-based hearing, uh, different forms of uh, three different forms of genetic-based hearing loss. So, so we have project teams that meet almost on a weekly basis, updating on data and ideas. And so it's a very interactive uh, type of relationship. And we've really benefited, I would say, particularly, you know, they're a very mature R&D organization with huge sophistication in development of sophisticated, complex biologics and other forms of medicines. And we get the benefit of their advice and experience as we develop our programs, as we write regulatory documents and uh, think about, you know, really the scientific and medical impact of our products. So it's a very interactive uh, type of relationship. That, and I think as, you know, as a small company during its formative years, having a, you know, big brother, big sister, if you will, to provide advice and support along the way. Um, and uh, obviously also make a financial contribution to the costs of developing these products. Um, yeah, it's a very strategic and important part of uh, part of our existence. They're also, uh, they also own about 9% of the company. So it's a very strategic relationship. And um, it's been a very important part of Decibel and, and our growth in the early years of our company. Now, you did also, to uh, just uh, round out the picture, you did also note that it has this unusual aspect that in the long term, you know, Decibel retains control of the products in terms of ultimately their development and commercialization, which is also a really important component for us to, uh, you know, continue to mature and grow as, a, as an independent biotech company. Uh, and that's, that's really important to us in terms of generating value um, for Decibel and its shareholders over the, uh, you know, over the longer term. Decibel is developing AAV gene therapies. What's the case for using this type of vector for the ear? Yeah, no, that's that's a really uh, important uh, question that uh, uh, that we are really quite excited to talk about today. Um, recognizing we're on the verge now of going into human beings, so a lot of our evidence is based on our animal studies and um, and, and also just the fundamental characteristics of AAV and the characteristics of the of the inner ear. So uh, human data to follow, and we'll really uh, you know as we move forward in the next uh, the next few years, we'll really be looking to de-risk this approach based on uh, subsequent efficacy and, of course, uh, safety studies in, in terms of delivering gene therapy to the inner ear. But the opportunity, we believe, is is very important and really quite exciting. And we really think that, that uh, gene therapy for hearing loss really is um, on the verge of, of being one of the vanguards of the gene therapy field, uh, more broadly defined, in years to come. So the inner ear is a is effectively a tiny essentially enclosed space and uh, the inner ear is is encased in uh, bone uh, really quite dense bone that protects uh, those structures and that means we have to think very carefully about how we access that space 
but the advantages of those characteristics are firstly that most of the drug um, that we administer stays in the ear so we're able to deliver it very directly to the cells that we're looking to infect and the vast majority of the drug uh, doesn't get out of the ear so we have no systemic exposure um, in the circulation which has been I think a big challenge to the development of gene therapies for other tissues that um, that the uh, the drugs have to be administered in very significant quantities and and circulate uh, systemically. Um, we are developing uh, therapies that are delivered directly to the tissue in need. That because of the space we're going into and the cell population and the tiny nature of those structures, that we have a very uh, very small drug dose. Uh, some numbers of uh, perhaps three to four logs less of dose than is used uh, for systemic uh, gene therapy. And that we're able to, as I said, directly deliver it and achieve very uh, high rates of infectivity of all the key cells, all the key cells that are of therapeutic relevance in the ear, we're able to infect uh, very effectively uh, with our AAV-based AAV uh, gene therapy. Um, and, um, you know, we, we access the ear by a surgical procedure that allows injection of, of the gene therapy essentially directly into the cochlea. And that's a surgical procedure that's used today on a daily basis throughout the developed world as part of the surgical routine by which a, uh, a child or a patient receives a, a cochlear implant. So we're leveraging that, um, that set of surgical knowledge, which we think is is, is really important in terms of uh, just trying to you know, remove the number of variables that are involved in such a novel therapy for a, a, a new field of medicine. The company's lead therapeutic candidate is in development for OTOF-related hearing loss. What is OTOF-related hearing loss? Yeah, so this, as you say, is our, our lead program. So OTOF is an abbreviation of otoferlin, and um, OTOF-related hearing loss is a profound form of, of hearing loss. Um, it's an auditory neuropathy where signaling from the inner ear to the brain um, is essentially completely blocked. And so these children are born with a profound uh, hearing loss um, that's caused by receiving two mutant forms of, of otoferlin, one from each of uh, uh, the child's parents. And, um, and so it's a simple monogenic form uh, of hearing loss. And um, as I say, it causes a complete uh, block on signaling from the hair cells of the inner ear to the auditory nerve uh, that takes the signal, the hearing sound, uh, into the brain uh, in terms of detection and interpretation of a sound from the outside world. And how is it diagnosed and at what age are people generally diagnosed with the condition? Yeah, so that's that's a, a great question and, and re represents sort of an evolving part of, our, of, of the opportunity here. So um, in, in, the, in the Western world, children um, receive a, a basic hearing test. Um, and there are different kinds of hearing tests, but a, a simple hearing test, usually at the hospital uh, where, where a child is born and within, you know, hours to a, to a very small number of days of being born. So that's a basic hearing test um, that we're able to assess in a very simple way 
you know, what's the capability of a child? And, and a, human beings are born with the capacity to hear um, in, in the vast majority of cases. And so a, a basic lack of hearing capability can be picked up very early, literally within hours of a child being born. The next step is a little bit more complicated in that you have to reflex from that basic hearing test ultimately to get to a genetic test. And for us, that's that's essential. We need to know that the, the children that we're interested in treating or are able to treat today are carrying uh, mutations in the odoferlin gene that underlie uh, that form of hearing loss. And um, that's achieved by genetic testing. And genet there are panels for uh, most of the common forms of, of genetic forms of hearing loss. And they are they're available in you know almost any uh, genetic testing situation today. But the uh, frequency or the fluidity with which children are moved from a from from uh, getting a signal that they may have an issue, uh, you know, on day two of their lives to getting that genetic analysis that can be a little different, um, very heterogeneous, even even within the U.S., depending on the city or, or, or medical system in which one um, happens to be uh, living. And so that we, that's something that we're working on education routes to, to try and encourage uh, a, a smoother transition of of all children who fail a, a healing a hearing test early in life onto a genetic test and so so sometimes it can take uh, a, a few months to get a child to a definitive genetic diagnosis as really um, understanding what the what the basis of their of their hearing loss is and you know in, in years to come when um, you know subject to our ongoing programs and subject to our clinical trials etc when we hope to be able to offer therapies to these children, that genetic diagnosis will be a, an essential part of, you know, of that process. And so we're really trying to sort of educate on the importance you know, of that transition from the basic diagnosis to the genetic diagnosis uh, today. And um, the genetic diagnosis, even in the, absent, in the absence of therapies, can still be quite informative in helping parents understand the likely trajectory and prognosis of, you know, of their child's hearing loss. Um, and there are some of these genetic forms of hearing loss that are, you know, they know that are profound and are not going to change. Others are more moderate, but there may be a degenerative effect over time. So there's a variability of prognosis that can be, so this value comes out of the genetic test today. And then of course, in the future, it really is the, the route by which we will uh, get to the patients who are really uh, the candidates for our gene therapies. One of the question marks around gene therapy is the durability of these treatments. The cells you're targeting are non-dividing cells, and I'm wondering what that might suggest about the durability of your treatment. Yeah, so that's that, that's a, a really a really great question. So um, let's just back up a moment. So the 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 key sensory cells in your in your inner ear are known as hair cells. They have nothing to do with the hair cells on the top of your head, um, but they have uh, they have sensory structures that detect movement of fluids through your ear in response to a uh, an external uh, uh, hearing uh, noise stimulus, and um, then that signal is then transmitted from those cells. Um, directly to the auditory nerve and 
odoferlin, the protein, uh, the, the, the gene, the odoferlin gene encodes, actually functions right at that interface of the hair cell uh, with the auditory nerve. And then you, you are correct. We are born with a finite number of, of hair cells, uh, which is unfortunate because they degenerate over the course of our lives. And we all ultimately hit some kind of threshold at which our um, hearing capability in terms of hair cells in the cochlea or um, our balance in terms of hair cells in the vestibule, that we hit a threshold at which we lose the acuity of our hearing or our balance response, uh, respectively. So those cells, it is a finite population. Uh, they essentially don't divide um, after after birth. And so that's an issue in terms of health of the ear, particularly for those of us as we start to age a little bit. But it does mean that, that, that we believe, and this needs to be confirmed obviously in human beings, but our animal studies are consistent with your suggestion, namely that because these cells are non-dividing, that we, we, we have the possibility to be able to achieve a stable uh, infection of our AAV into those cells to set up a, to set up a stable uh, system, genetic system within that cell expressing, for example, odoferlin in OTOF mutant uh, children, and that that system would then be stable and not washed out by those cells dividing in years to come. So that creates a, a, a reason to be optimistic about durability. We've certainly seen durable effects in animal studies over many months. And um, so that sets us up to do you know, much longer term studies in, in human beings. So that's the reason to, uh, to be optimistic about durability. And of course, you know, all to be proven in, in human studies in months and years to come. In many genetic rare diseases, there is progressive damage that requires early intervention with the gene therapy to get its full benefits. Is this true in the case of hearing loss? Would early intervention with the gene therapy work better to restore hearing? Yeah, so that's 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 a great question, and that will be we'll be analyzing obviously in our clinical trials, you know, in years to come. Um, if you go back to where we started, you know, a few minutes ago, there's also a, you know, a strong impetus um, for the reasons that hopefully I explained that we want to intervene early in these children's lives, just to make sure that they are starting to have the types of cognitive development and uh, social and emotional interactions that, uh, that we talked about. Um, but yes, as, as a, as a, as a general statement, um, where a tissue is or a cell is unable to function due to a genetic defect, the, the functionality of that cell can be lost um, over time. We believe that for odoferlin, just to, to stay there for a moment, um, that one of the reasons that odoferlin was picked as our first target is that the structures, the hearing structures, appear to be intact. Um, in a child born lacking odoferlin mutations, same is true of a uh, of the animal models of uh, of the condition that we've that we've developed. And um, so we believe there's a window, a postnatal window, in which we're going to be able to intervene and expect, again, to be proven that we expect that we'll be able to be successful um, intervening, you know, in a window postnatally. Now, it remains to be demonstrated you know, how long is that window, you know, measured in years after a child is born and to, to find a time after which we may not be able to 
uh, intervene and restore hearing. We know that in an animal, a small animal, um, we can intervene as late as a year after the birth of that animal and still achieve a very significant degree of, of hearing restoration. And a year, you know, that's a long time in, in the life of a, uh, of a rodent. It's perhaps 50% of its, uh, of its life. So that gives us, again, reasons to believe that in years to come, we're going to be able to intervene for some extended period of time successfully after the birth of a child. Uh, but eventually, you know, we will be testing that in our clinical trials in terms of what that um, what that age distribution looks like. So we are there. Are, there are good uh, physiological and, and neurodevelopmental reasons to get to a child early in their life and administer a therapy like this. And then there's also um, the the concern or the risk that that that, that uh, therapeutic window, if you will, will be closing in in months and years to come. So uh, we've tried to pick targets, excuse me, based on a clear ability to intervene, um, based on animal models and based on our understanding of the trajectory of hearing in these children. Uh, but uh, those windows need to be validated uh, ultimately in human studies in, in years to come. And re with regards to your lead experimental therapy, what's the development path forward? Well, so we've uh, we announced at the end of last year that we have uh, a, we cleared an IND in the USA to start our um, phase one two uh, clinical study of of our uh, candidate product, which we call DB Oto. Um, and then in January, we received clearance from the MHRA in the UK uh, to start studies there as well. And so we're now in the process of uh, working with particular clinical sites. Um, actually across the U.S. and a, a number of sites in the U.K. Uh, to start a clinical trial. And, and um, those sites, um, what we said publicly, is those sites will be up and running and the trial will be initiated uh, during the first half of this year. We also have a regulatory application under review in Spain, and um, which has been a, a key country, in, actually, in terms of studies in that country. And uh, experts in the genetic basis of hearing loss. So we're excited to to work with investigators in Spain as well. And we um, we hope we'll, that our CTA there will be cleared uh, you know, in, in the not too distant future. So, yeah, so moving, uh, moving ahead with a phase one, two uh, study in uh, pediatric patients um, who uh, are diagnosed with a with an auditory neuropathy that's due to odophilin mutations and uh, looking forward to um, dosing those patients uh, during this year. And um, we've also talked a little bit about um, expecting to be able to share initial data from some of the first patients in the trial uh, very early next year, 2024. It's been a tough time for public biotech companies. Decibel yeah. raised $127 million in an IPO in 2021 at $18 a share. It's now trading around 3 dollars 5 to $4. What's the conversation like with investors these days? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, it's you know it, it's been you know a, a, as a public company, you know we we, we go out and we uh, tell people the story and why we we think the decibel is trying to do important things. And um, you know, since our, and, and you know when you go when you go public, you lay out um, that strategy and goals. And 
I believe Decibel has made very significant advances, you know, in the two years or so since we went public. Um, the biotech stock market generally has been uh, completely beaten up during those during those two years, and the gene therapy sector also, until recently, has been a uh, you know as a subsector within biotech has been uh, disproportionately beaten up. There were a lot of concerns, I think, about particularly some of the safety uh, concerns around systemic gene therapy, recognizing that we think gene therapy in the ear, you know, has a different proposition in, in years to come for reasons that I, that I tried to explain. And so I think there's, there's a, there's a genuinely, generally there's a, a degree of appreciation that we're, we're in a challenging stock market and um, Decibel is an early stage company with all the risks that go along with that. And we look like, you know, quite a number of other companies out there. Uh, so that's sort of the the, the overall uh, backdrop. Um, so I think as, as people look forward now, both in Decibel specifically and the market more generally, um, I think there's a mood of quiet optimism or cautious optimism that the biotech stock market will be improving perhaps later this year um, seems to be uh, sort of the mood, obviously, you know, who knows what will actually happen. And um, I think that in terms of investors who look at Decibel today, there's an appreciation that um, therapies for hearing loss represents a very, still represents a very significant uh, opportunity. And people are looking forward um, to the, you know, to the early clinical data that's going to be coming from us and hopefully other companies in, in the, in the gene therapy field for the ear, you know, over the next, you know, few years um and that clinical data will be important in terms of really um helping the field mature um uh, as a human therapeutic field so it's 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 been tough times i think people have a general understanding of that and then you know they're very much looking forward to companies like decibel to okay you raise money you know you need to execute you need to hit some of these goals that you've laid out in front of us and i would say that uh Overall, we feel people remain uh, open and positive on the opportunity, and it's up to us now to deliver product candidates that can begin to validate some of that trust and hopefully open up the opportunity uh, for these therapies and, as I say, take them into the clinic and really gain the type of clinical data in the future that, subject to all the obvious uh, uh, bumps in the road and risks of those kinds of processes, can get us to a situation where we can really begin to demonstrate uh, in human beings the potential for these approaches. How far will existing cash take you and what's the plan for raising additional capital? Yeah. So, you know, as a young biotechnology company, of course, one is always thinking about uh, uh, about accessing capital and that sort of ongoing part of our strategy. Um, what we say publicly is that we have runway into uh, the first half of 2024 and um we will be using that money to ensure that we get to that uh, those very key initial uh, data readouts from our Odeferlin trial. And um, we've stated that we'll release some of that data uh, very early next year. So that's within our that's within our current financial footprint and very committed to making sure we get there. And, and as we move down that path, as I said, constantly looking for uh, the right uh, the right avenues and and uh, timings to, to access additional money to, to help continue to build the company. And we're very excited about the pipeline. Our, 
our colleagues at Regeneron are very excited about our pipeline. So we think there's a, a lot of potential here and uh, need to navigate through uh, these financial times and make sure that we uh, focus on the real, the, you know, the key aspects of our company uh, that are really going to help us uh, continue to advance as, as well, we think we can be a leader in this field in opening up new therapeutic opportunities uh, for people, children in the short term, but hopefully uh, also people of uh, more maturing uh, years, uh, you know, in the future of our company. Lawrence Reed, CEO of Decibel Therapeutics. Lawrence, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Really appreciate the, the opportunity to be here. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The BioReport, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.